0: hello everyone welcome back hope you well um, welcome to my weekly podcast it's Sunday afternoon um, and it's it's that it's usually my favorite one of my favorite days of the year today uh, because it's the day when uh, the clocks go forward overnight from Saturday to Sunday obviously and we get evening light back again we lose a bit in the morning but that comes pretty quickly the um the approaching spring and summer but um the thing that's instantly nice is that the sun is an hour higher in the sky um which is great for the end of the day you know so it's like what time is it now five o'clock i mean it's been bright five o'clock for a few weeks but um it's just nice to have a bit of you know nice daylight and it's going to be around for maybe next two or three hours which is good the weather is um hideous because it's one of those annoying it's my least favorite weather actually it's um the sun comes in and out and the sun's pretty warm but the wind is absolutely freezing uh to the bone you know so i spent yesterday doing a bit of stuff in the garden um we have quite a big garden it's quite a complicated garden Uh, and I'm useless at gardening as well Um, so that adds extra complication I could I think I could probably destroy a garden quite easily by just like basically pulling everything up and planting grass because that's kind of I understand grass and I don't understand the difference between a flower and a weed because you know weeds look nice I just think lots of pretty weeds aren't they? so you end up I end up in this situation where i don't really know what i'm doing so what i tend to um if i'm sort of in the garden and tasking myself with things to do i tend to tidy up and i was doing about y- yesterday doing a bit of that and it was absolutely freezing the wind was just horrendous you know but the wind the sun kept coming out and earlier in the week obviously we've, we've been uh, the uk's now sort of in, in this kind of stay-at-home vibe, which most of the world, I think, is in now, really. Very sensible. Stay-at-home people. Um, And it's been like a nice week, you know. So uh, I'm still working uh, at home. And um, very, very lucky, the situation I've got here is I I was already kind of set up for online teaching anyway. I I don't really do any online teaching. I don't advertise it. It's not something that um, I've ever pushed because I just don't have the time for it. Um, it just ends up, you know. I go to I go to work at a music college uh, five days a week. It's a full time job, and uh, when I come home, I do like to have some time uh, to myself for music, and also sometimes myself for just for other stuff, you know, just to be at home with my partner and. Just sit and watch the telly, or just whatever you know. They just and if and you end up if you end up in getting this this online teaching thing uh, all the time as a kind of as a living, you end up doing it all the time. Especially if you're sort of doing international teaching, you know. My uh, my better half she does it when she's away examining, uh, and she teaches the kids that she teaches here. So at the moment she's teaching them at home. They're all really used to it, so it's been no shock to the system for any of her students. Uh, but she does it when she's away in India and uh, Australia and all these parts of the world that she goes to. Uh, and uh, it's the time zone thing, isn't it? You know, you you sort of forget you think that's a great idea to be an online teacher, and then you suddenly realise that if you, you know someone in South America or in North America or. Someone in Australia or somebody on the, on the other side, you know, uh, the Asian Pacific or whatever, China, Hong Kong or somewhere, wants a lesson with you. <clears throat> it um, becomes tricky, doesn't it? Because you're in time zone, the time zone vibe. So that's why I've never really got into it. But luckily, because I'm set up for it, <clears throat> doing this um, thing with students at college has been really easy. And they've all taken to it really well, and uh, that's all been fine. So it's, I've been mainly doing that this week in the old drum shed, but I've also been sort of taking a bit of my own advice anyway and in, in, in trying to stay focused, setting some tasks. And it kind of led me to sort of the, the topic of this week's podcast, really, because um, I was thinking about this idea of process, you know, um, and what that kind of means, what that relates to. Um, so that was the topic today, really. Process. So what 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 does this relate to? What does this mean? What does this mean to you? What do you think about when you go through different processes? And I'm talking about obviously, you know, the instrument as a as a drummer. The different situations that present different processes. Um, so I was going to start by talking about. Like something simple, like learning a new study or a piece or something. And uh, what I thought I'd do today was a bit of an experiment. There's a couple of experimental things that are going to be in this podcast. Um, Because I sort of realised that I've got quite a bit more flexibility than I thought with all this podcast stuff. I I am going to do, hopefully, this coming week, I am hopefully going to do my first guest podcast. Um, I'm not going to say who that's with, but I'm looking forward to doing it. And we've discussed kind of different ways of making that work. But it's, you know, as long as somebody's got uh, a proper recording setup, like a decent mic and and, uh, a door, as they call it, a digital audio workstation so cool down with the kids there the door they all talk about doors i remember we having some discussion at college once and this kid was talking about doors and i just thought he was talking about the door that you come through you know i was like why is he talking about the door why is he going on about it it's like there's nothing special about this door in this room it's just like a normal door with a handle on it and a window and then i realized he was talking about software and so um yeah I've got my door, which is Logic, and um, I do like Logic, I used to be a Cubase person, I was Cubase for a long, long time, right back to the Steinberg Pro 12 days and, uh, on the Atari and the Pro 24, and then I sort of moved to Cubase, and then I got rid of the Atari and went onto the PC and got early versions of Cubase on the PC, which were pretty rubbish, but um, I kind of learned a lot about computers through Cubase. Especially when the audio side of things came in, and um, I had uh, some software called SOAR, Software Audio Workstation, which required a certain amount of RAM to run. And I was running a computer with 8 meg of RAM, and you had to tweak all the DOS stuff and what was loading into base memory in order to create enough memory for SOAR to run. And I was using that, and then the early versions of the sort of log- uh, sorry Cubase audio. Which that first version just had eight tracks of audio, no plugins or anything. You had to do all your own sort of sending to reverb units and stuff. And uh, I quite like those simple days. That used to work well. That software, but then I sort of eventually got this Logic thing. And uh, I was chatting to a few people that I want to do some interviews with, and they've all got the same setup. We just realised that we could actually do what all the world is doing at the moment and get on. Skype or Teams or uh, you know, FaceTime or you know, WhatsApp video call or what any of these platforms where you can see somebody and basically just record each side of it, obviously, and then, um, you know, send either one the uh, the audio file, just put a sync reference in it and then stick them together, you know. And so I'm going to be doing that hopefully this week. I've got two or three people lined up that I've been chatting to about doing these interviews. Um, But also I'm going to put a couple of things into this podcast. Uh, I've got a little demo thing later talking about process and and a a story that I wanted to tell and share. Um, But um, yeah, I was going to start with like a, with like a new piece, so just as a sort of quirky little thing, um, I've got my practice pad here, and I wanted to talk about different processes to do with to do with learning stuff. And I'm not going to be an exhaustive guide here, by the way. There's probably thousands of things that I'll miss, and people will just be going, "Why are you not talking about that? Why are you not talking about that?" Well, it's just because I just haven't remembered, basically. Um, well, I've got a few things I'd like to talk about today, and the first one was just about how do you learn a new piece. You know, what is the approach? Well, I like to do this thing. It's called line at a time, um, and it's something that somebody taught me um, a long, long time ago. And it was—it's just an approach to basically uh, getting a new piece of music. So I've got this—I've got my Chas Wilcoxon book open here. And I've just opened it at one of the early pages of the pieces. There's all the rudiments and then there's all these rudimental pieces. And um, I'm not going to learn the whole piece now. But it's a piece called Roughing the Single Drag. And it's dedicated to Louis Belson. I don't know if anybody knows this piece. It's not a particularly complicated piece. Um, And it's, of course, like all these, they're designed to be kind of rinsed, you know, played quickly, um, which is, you know, whatever it is. Um, But you certainly don't learn it in that way. And I think there's, like, a lot of peer pressure when you learn the piece of music, I think. A lot of people feel, because if if they've heard somebody play the piece of music before, or they've seen it on YouTube or, or wherever, and they see somebody playing it really fast, I think there's, like, a thing where... People feel when they come to learn something that like they can't take their time with it. They can't be you know, be be slow with it, understand the mechanics of it. And actually, if you want to get anywhere quickly then you want to get to playing something fast, the, the thing that you've really got to do is learn to play something slowly and really understand how it works. This was a... I think I told this story, one of the early podcasts about rolling in rhythm and somebody that I had uh, teaching me um well he wasn't teaching me he was like a supervisor at school practice supervisor but he he, we used to sort of chat about things and he was uh quite a few years older than me but he taught me a great lesson um it's in one of the earlier podcasts i'm not going to tell the story again but it was a great lesson in in learning things and, and taking your time to understand actually how something works and uh we say it all the time. Teachers say it all the time. You see you see it written everywhere. It's every profound kind of posting on social media, every second or third profound one is about taking the time to understand or something, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's around us all the time, and we can become a little bit kind of um, desensitized to it, really, um, because we live in this world of information, you know. And we forget about process. And process, you can't, you can't bypass process. Process is 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 uh, the the thing of going from point of starting with something to ending with something that you're happy with, and that is, is kind of got to uh, got to the truth or the point of something you're trying to do. And some of the things I'm going to talk today. A little bit more uh, subjective, or, or they, they involve other people, or they involve situations or scenarios. But something like <clears throat> this piece, roughing the single drag, it's a very quantifiable thing. You know, it's a piece of music. It's written. It's got some rudiments and accents and rhythmical values. Okay, and it's it's not very complicated. So the way I start with a piece like this is the first line. I'll just look at the first line and just visually look through it and i can see already there's like a kind of syncopated pattern going on here and it's a little bit awkward with this one because the the syncopations are not actually in uh, in the phrases that the lines are so it's a funny one a lot of the wilcoxon pieces are a bit strange because they're not written some of them four lines four bars on a, on a line sorry uh, like roughing the single drag because of the spacing is three bars a line <clears throat> and the phrases the musicality of the of the piece is not a three bar thing you know some of the rolling rhythm the the later um, the stuff at the the end of it all that stuff with the with the three strokes and the accents that isn't written four bars uh, a line and I remember once when I I saw that piece rewritten out by somebody <clears throat> and it was written um four bars strictly four bars on a line. I remember how much easier it was to read, you know, I was like, oh, it's just that phrase repeated again. But because of the way Wilcoxon it was kind of published through with you know the way Wilcoxon published it or the publisher published it, I should say. Um it was harder to read, and roughing the single drag's the same, but I'm still going to be strict with my line of time thing just because I'm dealing with uh, mechanical information and rhythmical information. So very slowly, the first line, if I'm getting this right, now I've got to look at the stickings, because the thing about Wilcoxon is that he has all these specific stickings. And uh, you have to adhere to them. And there's a kind of logic behind them. And there's also accents. So I'll probably spend a bit of time on this first line really trying to get the stickings right, as well as the rhythmical values. And then the accents. So I probably won't start with the accents. I'll just start with trying to get the rhythmical values. And uh, so it kind of goes something like this. If I'm thinking about sort of tempo... one E, one, two E, and a three E, and that kind of speed. Yeah. That. So that's the first line, and there was a mistake in there because I was reading the sticking and I shouldn't have been, um, I should have been just trying to get the rhythmical values right. So it's this basically, it's this kind of syncopated thing that I've already kind of, oh yeah, I remember this. It's a long, long time since I played this piece. But it's basically this kind of phrase that goes... <jingles> it's that thing. That's the underlying thing of it. And it sounds like a kind of jazzy, a jazzy solo. So I'm like, oh, OK, so I'm, I'm already recognising something about this from my experience. And even at the time, I learned this when I was probably about 15. Um, and even then, because I was listening to, um, you know, players like Buddy Rich and Gene Crooper and uh, Louis Belson and Joe Morello and those kind of drummers, Kenny Clark and people, these sort of phrases were quite familiar to me. So I, I really liked this book because it felt like it was a, a way into their world, you know, um, just because of the way it's written down. And it's and it also, there's this sort of like a slight sense of interpretation with this book as well. You know, like you feel like you can sort of interpret it slightly. Uh, but I'm not going to get too into that now because that's going down another rabbit hole. Um, so let's just try it again. So, uh, okay, so I need to take, there's an accent I need to get rid of there. So that. I'm accenting the last one too heavily because it's not written as an accent. So it's got this kind of thing of... And the last one is accented on the line. So it's already... this. this, this oh, sorry about that, hitting the microphones down there with the stick. Um, So I'm thinking, oh, I'm, am I dragged a little bit too compressed? Am I, am I or, or should it be? So that's kind of an interpretive thing. For me, it would be, I'd be more open naturally than that. Okay. So I'm just starting to get a handle on this first line. And then the idea is that you move on to the second line. Uh, And that's the second line. And by the time I've learnt the second line, so I'd go back and spend some time with the stickings. Just looking at, oh, that one should be... I'm already thinking about individual little exercises to work on here things like so that's a drag played right right left right right left not alternating but i'm i'm trying to just get the accents right i want that's my i'd think of that as my even or my legato sound and then So now I've got to think about, I'm just thinking, okay. So I would maybe come away from the piece for a little bit and I would just practice some drags that were left, left, right, left, left, right, one with accent, one without. Now, uh, swap the sticking round. So, I'm already just thinking about the sort of detail of how I'm going to approach the sort of value and the sound world of the drag. Um, because it's like if we have played this piece before, it's just the whole page is just basically full of drags. You know, there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of. Some triplets and stuff, and some single stroke things, but it's essentially um, you know, it's just a page full of uh, it's actually this rhythm. You know, Um, just turn that very loud phone vibrating there. Um, Yeah, it's just this basically that syncopated rhythm is pretty omnipresent. And the thing that's the thing that's great about this is. There are some little subtleties in it, you know. So it's it's just being aware of those subtleties. And then I've noticed, like, further down, there's, there's things like five-stroke rolls and stuff. And I'm thinking, should the drag be twice the speed now, the five-stroke? Oh, uh, no, I think it... I I would stay at the same speed because the fundamental thing is this fundamental sound. Now if I tripletize it That's the first eight bar phrase, essentially, with some sl- taking some slight liberties with the articulation, the accents. But this is already, I'm thinking about how I can interpret this. And uh, so it's that kind of thing of that sort of exciting process of going from, okay, I'm going to learn this piece of music, I'm going to try and learn a line at a time. And so by the time I get down to the bottom of the page, I've pretty much learnt the material. And, you know, learning the material is one part of the process. The second is the detail, okay. The third is the speed, you know. And then the fourth I always think of is is this interpretive side of it. And uh, I'm already jumping there ahead into stage four like i always do because i'm thinking oh i can tripletize this and turn it into more of a triplety thing and you if you hear people playing it on youtube and things you know or you you know if you ever heard anybody performing this piece you do hear quite a lot of people they they tend to to swing it or tripletize it a little bit they don't tend to play it strictly as written It's got um, That's the kind of inner subdivision. There's some hand-to-hand triplets down. Now it's very easy to play. There's some of those. There's some of these phrases that go down. with a pulse there. One, two, down. It's very easy to play them like this. End up as being triplets. So, anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that because that's very boring. Um, but try that thing of of line at a time. You know, try that idea of uh, of seeing. You know how how quickly that how quickly that gets you to the source material. You know, um, so that's one sort of um, process, if you like, that uh, that I'm often involved in. Um the second that's very common for me is coordinational um coordinational uh, process the the task of of learning something that's coordinationally quite complicated um so as an example a very very simple example of this that i can that I can sort of demonstrate on the pad it's not necessarily something that I'm going through learning, but it's something that maybe you can think about is, is like if you're in a situation where you go, okay, I want to improve my coordination, you know, um, a lot of the, the stuff, the coordination stuff I'm involved in teaching is linked to, uh, to this thing, you know, jazz coordination. Some people call it independence. Um, that's, uh, that's that's a word that's batted around a lot. I, I tend to sort of stay away from that word, but it's okay as a word. Um, I just like the idea of things, you know, sounding as one, and the independence idea um, always makes me think that something's happening alongside or outside the thing that's kind of going on, you know, whereas... Something that's coordinated within a groove or within whatever it is, a style or something, you know, is people are thinking generally about the holistic sound, you know, not the individual coordinated thing. And one of the common things I teach a lot is, is this thing where you're playing swing on the cymbal, um, play it on the music stand or whatever. And then we've got this thing where the feet are doing an ostinato as well, which and then the left foot generally plays at the same volume as the right hand. It's on the hi-hat. So your hi-hat foot, if you're, if you're left-handed, it's ride and hi-hat. And the bass drum, he's playing on all four beats of the bar, a feather bass drum thing. And It's not, you know, nothing. I've talked about this before, nothing spectacular in that kind of idea. And one of the tasks with early sort of coordinational practice is this thing of playing playing these left hand these left hand patterns. There's a whole chart of them that most people learn and there's lots of different versions of those charts but they're all basically the same thing. There are combinations of uh, triplet patterns in the in the that are played on the snare drum whilst playing time on the ride cymbal. so one of the one of the easiest ones to talk about in relation to process and and having a process of, of learning that coordination is on the chart that I use, which was uh, is basically the same, I think it's pretty much the same chart as Dave Hassel gave me um, a long, long time ago. Number three is the second and third triplet quaver of each beat. One, two, three, two, three, two, three, two, three. Okay. So that has one sort of coordinational challenge really in the middle of it. The the essential part of it is easy because you're right, left, left, right, left, left. Or if you're left-handed, the opposite thing. But it's rides right, snare, there, rides snare, there. Right, snare, snare. Now I can hear you saying, "Well, where's the skip beat, Dave?" And it's like, "Well, there you go. The skip beat is this momentary coordinational challenge. And there's sort of two, two or th- three different ways of thinking about it. There's the first way is to just think about it for what it is." You're playing swing time in the right hand and offbeat triplet quavers on the second and third quavers of the beat um, in the left hand. And some people find that process fine and they will work fine thinking about things in that way. But well, there are two other ways you can think about that pattern which may be helpful to you to get into it quicker. The first and the most successful um, approach that I've had in teaching is to talk about it as a sticking and forget about it as a as a thing that's played on a ride and a snare drum. So people left-handed bear with me. It's the opposite sticking to this. You know, the sticking is basically right, left, left, right, left, together. Okay. Now the together stroke is where we can have our third approach to this we can say right left left right left flam and the flam is a right leading flam to a to a left so right left right left left uh, right left left right left flam okay now most people who can't play can't play that ride cymbal pattern with that offbeat left hand thing can play the other approach that I'm presenting to you. They can go right, left, left, right, left together. And they can also go right, left, left, right, left, flam. And actually, it's a sophisticated thing. They can usually go right, left, left, right, left, flam, leading with the left flam. The, the, the left hand is, is, the, is the grace note that creates the flam. And, uh, and that's actually technically more difficult because you're playing three lefts, aren't you? Right, left, left, right, left, left, right three left there so that's why i always present the other one okay so that's a process just that going through that process and then that whole page you can work out basically as in those three different ways. There are points where the hands play together and there are points where the hands don't play together. Where the hands play together, you can call it a together stroke or a flam stroke. It doesn't matter. Uh, or you can just approach it as it's written and as it is a ride symbol thing with a snare drum, the snare drum playing, triplet comping patterns uh, or on various different beats of the bar. The only one... uh that's different is uh, I don't want to go too much into it now is the very last one where it's the straight quavers and that's like a rhythmical value thing and again that's just a different way of thinking about it you know 2 over 3 is a is a so 2 over 3 is a pattern I always think flam da do da (laughs) Um, then 16th notes. Think about it as a rhythm as in, in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, back, back. Okay, that's just from the sort of early days uh, of sort of learning rhythms. There's certain things that stick with you. And then uh, if you're learning to play, you know, a straight quaver thing on the snare and the right symbol thing, you just take. You take parts out of the of the of the ride cymbal pattern. You start with the three over two, and then you end up with that. So you got you just got that straight thing going on the snare drum. I'm missing out the triplet quaver in 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 the ride cymbal, and then you just take one more out, and then you've got your. Your pattern, and it actually it's a it's a rhythmical sound or value that you need to learn. Uh, but again, it's just a different way of thinking about it. Um, the other way is to play a very deep skip note. So you're thinking about digger digger ding 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 ding. So it's just you're turning the skip beat into a semi quaver or a sixteenth note. that's another way of learning it, but that's actually not what it is is it so um but it can be a way in it can just be a way in again it's just a process um and again it's just taking your time and understanding you know how something works um so that's that's another thing that i was wanting to just mention today the next one is a thing that people commonly do is is this thing of playing covers, you know, or or playing along to records and, and playing trying to play. There's two things you can do. I, I spent a lot of time uh, playing along to records when I was younger, and I used to sort of attempt to copy drummers that were far better than me. Um, so in the end. Uh, it was a sort of lot of garbage, really. Um, and, no, it wasn't terrible, but it was just... I was, you know, punching way above my weight, you know, in relation to trying to play stuff that I could never get anywhere near, you know. Um, but what it did was it kind of made me interpret those things and try and play them in my own way. And I sort of developed my own way of playing, really, by by that method. Uh, but that was listening to a lot of jazz recordings... That was listening to, you know, trying to play along with Buddy Rich and trying to play along with Jack Jeanette and trying to play along with Peter Erskine and all these different people that I could never get anywhere near with what they were doing, you know. Um, but the other the other thing as well is playing, you know, cover versions of, of tunes. And so with that, again, it's like learning the drum parts properly. And, and that process is different it you may be doing it by ear which is great I think that's the best way to do it um, you can download these PDFs and stuff you know off uh, websites and that can be really interesting when I think you've spent a little bit of time learning it by ear and trying to copy it by ear and trying to work out what somebody's doing on the record for yourself and then it's it can be really nice to then find Like a definitive version that somebody's transcribed, um, and compare what you've worked out for yourself with with what's going on on the you know with what's actually going on with the drum part. You 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 may be closer uh, than you think, or you may not be that close. But again, that whole process is 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 not a bad process. Even if you're miles off, it doesn't matter. You're still. You're still sort of listening and trying to interpret, you know, uh, and you're sort of bringing something to the instrument, which is um, where you're hearing it. Um, and, it, you know, if you've got, if there's any level of awareness in that process, then that's a good thing. You know, you, you may really like what you've come up with. It, it may end up being, oh, yeah, that is, that is quite different, but I quite like what I've done. And, and actually, I'm going to use that drum part for something else, you know. Or you may be really close, which is great, which means that your ears, you know, you, you, your ears are really attuned and you really understand what you're listening out for. And uh, and this kind of links into the whole thing of, to the bigger thing of transcription. The two things I've been discussing are kind of like linked this idea of transcribing, you know. Transcription is... Again, it's a really, really strong tradition within jazz. It's uh, it's a tradition by ear, essentially. In, you know, in its uh, in its kind of um, where it's from. You know, the, the the Charlie Parker thing was that Charlie Parker wrote all those tunes. You know, Ornithology and Confirmation. All those things were all they were all learned. Sorry, composed by things that he'd learnt by ear, and then he, he he got he put them down on paper. You know that's the that's the that's the story behind it. But he learnt on jam sessions. He used to go and stand. He used to get up on stage, and uh, and try and copy people and and hear the lines that people were playing and and understand what the good lines were, what the what the not so good lines were, and then kind of went back and. We'd play over them again and start to work out, well, why does that line sound good over that chord? And and for drums, the um the thing of transcription is is uh has the same purpose, but it's it's a very different process because you're not having to work out most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, about the kind of harmonic movement or rhythm of the piece of music, you know, the form or whatever. A lot of the time it's about trying to uh, learn the source material in the beginning and then trying to get kind of close to the sound world, you know. And uh, that process is a fascinating process which can really teach you a lot about uh, how you get around the instrument and how how you can sort of Change the way you get around the instrument by listening to somebody else and working out how they do what they do and uh, uh, you sort of discussed that a little bit in the past before but it's it's like another thing of process that's the that's the sort of process that you go through and uh, if you're able to sort of work in that way with transcription then you'll learn uh, you'll learn to listen. Really well because because a lot of it is about doing it by ear. Um, now, I teach uh, a class at college, and I've, I've been teaching it for quite a long time uh, in different sort of under different headings, but it's essentially the same thing. It's about um, it's about listening and taking uh, sort of nuggets of things that people playing or people here on records and and then trying to work it out transcribe it and also doing longer transcriptions doing transcribing solos or uh what a lot of people don't do is transcribing people playing grooves or comping or whatever you know when they're playing time or when they're playing like a section that's not solo section when they're playing behind other people Uh, i personally find that that stuff much more interesting uh because I I, I just generally I'm more interested when I'm playing when I'm playing with other people. I don't really like drum solos and sort of you know doing sort of playing on my own in that situation. I, um, it's something that we have to do because we that in the tradition of kind of playing jazz we solo you know. But um, yeah, it's uh, I, I like uh, working out things that people are doing when they're playing behind people like uh, when they're playing like a groove thing or like, different you know bass drum patterns or when they're comping and there's different things going on in the snare with the snare of the bass drum on the snare and the hi-hat um, i find that really really interesting but it teaches you to listen as well and process things in real time and uh, i talk about this quite a lot and there's two different approaches to transcription that, that students generally take. And I, I always give the option. So when I was at school, I was at school with this uh, very, very good piano player who had amazing perfect pitch and stuff, and he could transcribe off records with a cassette player, and he would just press play for like half or quarter of a second and listen to the sort of slither, the vertical slither of what was going on in the music. you know? They'd be like... You know, it'd be like a vocal line or a, or a horn line or there'd be like chords on different instruments and a bass, you know. And he could write that stuff down uh, by ear because he had perfect pitch, but he also had very good relative pitch. Or He was he was a very musical guy, you know, he he just had that kind of the musical... Uh, logic going on he he didn't just rely on the perfect pitch thing the perfect pitch thing can be great but it can also be a hindrance and it can also be meaningless if you don't have any kind of relative understanding of music you know if you don't know how music works how how it actually is constructed it can be no use you know Um, but perfect pitch is certainly very helpful for working out uh, this type of stuff uh, it's of no use at all with drums is it um because drums is um is not pitched in the same way so uh, but he used to write everything down and he do he'd do it that way and then he, and then he was an exceptionally good reader and he'd just read it you know now there are some students uh that I teach and it basically it's like 50-50 some like to sit and they like to listen <clears throat> and write down on manuscript paper or in some kind of software like Sibelius or Finale or something, they actually like to write the solo out. You know, before even playing it on the instrument at all, before even going near the drum kit, they like to sit and work it out by ear, um, which is a real job of work. You know, and I've got a lot of uh, respect and time for that. It's not the way I do it, but there's no, I don't have any issue with people that do do that way. And then the other way, of course, is to is to do it by uh trying to copy uh using the record in real time maybe spending a bit of time just listening a lot and, and just learning the the thing in a kind of very superficial way and just a kind of hearing way like oh yeah I, I know that solo now I kind of I can I can almost sing all the parts back I know where, where what's going on now I'm going to sort of get into working out exactly what's going on and then Some of those students never write the solo out. They just learn it and memorize it, and then they just get into the detail thing. They just get right into trying to replicate the sound and working out how somebody's doing what they're doing. Some people then, they do write it out. They learn it all, and then they spend some time to then write it out, which is like another level of memorizing, um, which again is a good process. Uh, I, I sometimes do that, and sometimes I don't. depends on what it is. Um, but I quite like doing that process sometimes. But I can already play it on the kit by the time I've done that. So, you know, it's like a slightly... It's a different process, but I, I'd i do it... If I was learning four things, I'd maybe do it with one of them, you know. Um, and it would normally be because there'd be something rhythmically complex or interesting going on that I wanted to sort of have written down you know um, and a lot, I like doing it with logic and stuff as well sometimes I'll I'll play things in or I'm writing a piece where I'm trying to write something where I'm using different odd groupings or whatever and it's nice to sort of see to count through it but also see it on the screen sometimes on on the on that grid editor or on the score editor you know it's quite nice so again it's just it's all process 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 isn't it all these things are about how you're kind of engaging with uh with that way of learning so all that's kind of i'm talking now all about some you know kind of a uh, personal stuff but then there's the thing about sort of when you're working with other people in a studio or on or a rehearsal situation and uh this is where I was going to share with you a story about, um, about like, when you're in a studio, um, you have different scenarios, don't you? Sometimes you go in the studio with a group that you're playing with, and the drum part's very much, you know, your drum part, and there's an engineer, and there's no producer. It's just a group, and then you're hiring a studio out, and you're in there, and you're... And there may be things that, as you start to hear the drum part back for the first time in the, with that level of detail, there may be things that start to um, concern you, or inspire you, or make you think differently about the part. And so in that situation, there can be this kind of process of what I kind of think about as, build, as like building drum parts or building a part or rebuilding a part. Because um, there's been many times I've been in the studio where I'll... Um, and this is not working with a producer, so I'll talk about... Or with an artist, I'll talk about that in a minute, which is a separate thing. And uh, that's much more interesting Um and kind of easier in a way. But this... Scenario um, where you're like, oh, you know, I'm listening back to this thing. I'm not that in. I'm not not that into the part actually. What what is it about this that I'm not into? But there is something I still like about it. But there's something that's not working. And it's normally just that of that thing of really hearing something for the first time and thinking, is this actually the part? You know, or is is uh, am I seeing glimpses of the part as I'm playing? Um, that can be uh, quite disconcerting sometimes because a lot of the time we can spend time rehearsing something um, for quite a while and spend a lot of time arguing and talking and discussing and debating and tweaking and all that kind of stuff and going back to the shed and working on things and then when we come to record something we can suddenly realise that there's something about that part now that you're listening to it in the, with this level of detail, there's something about the way you're voicing the part or the way in which you're controlling the snare drum or something, or the way you're playing the bass drum that's not quite working. And so there's like this thing of maybe rebuilding the part or or thinking of a different way to build a drum part. And so this is kind of more linked, I would say, towards you know music that's... Um, that's less improvisational you know um or less kind of jazzy or or is is something where you're trying to support a song or build a song you know and that's when i always feel the need for a somebody to come in or somebody else's opinion you know and uh and that can be really useful if you're working with a with a producer or with the artist you know because then they can have really strong ideas about about how to kind of tweak a part or to you know to sort of find a part um and the thing in that situation is about being really open you know it's about not being cl- a closed book on anything it's about being really open sitting back and trying to listen and trying to understand There's a great Steve Gadd story when he talks, uh, it's from one of the very early um, DCI videos called In Session and the guy is saying to him, you know, how do you feel if you're in the studio and something you're playing, you know, you really like something you're playing, the producer's like, saying that, you know, they don't like that part or they want you to do something differently and and Gadd just says, without even thinking, I'd just go with the producer, you know. And they have this sort of discussion about different scenarios and he says you know maybe sometimes i feel quite strongly about something i'll you know and he says sometimes people don't know what they're um what they're after completely or they're trying to they're they're working out like you are because something about what they've heard that you do has actually changed their view you know uh sometimes it's the thing they don't think they want that they want And, and but it's all about you have to be you have to be quite calm and be able to stand back and sort of see the bigger picture and not let your kind of ego and things get in the way, you know, um, which can be, you know, a very, very easy thing to do. And uh, and I think that if you've got that kind of mindset from the beginning, I think it does allow you to have a bit more of an open view or a bit more openness generally in your music you know um you don't want to just be completely passive you don't just want you know people to be telling you what you're doing all the time you know that that becomes that sort of becomes processless almost really because you know part of this whole the whole thing of what this process is about is about you having you know uh an opinion and an idea and something that you can work from or the ability to to change you know be flexible and not be fixed you know um so yeah it's kind of a that's like an interesting um interesting sort of scenario and there's like an example of this that i wanted to to mention i recorded this album um it's about eight years ago now Uh, i think it's actually eight eight years nearly um it's yeah, because it was Easter, two thousand and twelve. We we're nearly at uh, nearly at Easter two thousand and twenty, um, and it was an album with the uh, artist Tom McRae, um, and the very last track on the album is this tune called "Hoping Against Hope," and uh, it's a it's a great track. It's a track, it's worth listening to now, actually. Uh, there's a great line in there, it's going to be okay, you know. And uh, it's uh, there was a real task attached to this, to tracking the drums on this for, uh, for me, was that Tom had this kind of, he always has these amazing sort of mock-up um, drum tracks, and, and they're done on, um, I don't know what he uses, something on Pro Tools or, or whatever, and it's like a virtual drummer thing and they're really like I always listen to them and just go well they'll sound better than me I don't know why you're bothering with me he spends he seems to like have a great way of writing and creating these drum parts and they've always got like really great sounds as well because of like these sample sounds that are quite quirky um, particularly like the bass drums and stuff um, and it's hard to replicate those things because you don't realize it you know that those sort of those drum packages have Serious processing, you know, behind them. Somebody spent a lot of money with some expensive preamps and stuff to to get to those sounds and mix those sounds, you know. And here you come in with your, you know, with your with your drum kit and your whatever, and you're trying to get close to that. It's like it's like a nightmare. But the thing that you can't get close to is the human feel, of course, which is why you know why you end up on the record. So we had this tune. Uh, it's a tune we played a lot live after the album came out. It was great live. And it kind of... It's a nightmare live because the architecture of the tune is quite simple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play you uh, in a minute uh, two little clips from um, from the recording session which are not on the album. Um, I well I'll tell you the story and I'll tell you why I ended up with these um, with this the, with this drum take because basically the drum track starts on brushes it's in like 12, 8, 6, 8, 3, 8, 3, 4 whatever you want to think about 1, 2, 2, 2, 3 cat, 2, 2, etc it's one of those and it's with brushes and it's this kind of like feel I can't my brushes are over the side it. I'm just doing it with my hands at the so sorry. Um anyway it doesn't matter. You'll hear you'll actually hear me playing it in a minute uh, on in in the studio. Um just some overheads. Um and it starts with brushes and the song kind of goes through the early verse and it's got a, it's a real slow builder uh and it's quite a long song actually for for an album song it's um it's like seven or something minutes, um, if I remember rightly. Um, I might be wrong about that. It's, it's quite a long tune. Anyway, but the drum part starts, it's, it's brushes together. And then at some point, Tom wanted me to go to the ride with a uh, a lightning rod or a hot rod. And, um, and it does that for a bit, playing ting, ting. And the snare is still being played with the brush, but it's just being played like a sort of backbeat thing. And then it goes back to brushes. So back to the okay. Then it goes back to the rod with the brush in the left hand. For not that long. I'll play that, I'll play those bits in a minute. And then it goes from the the rod on the right to a stick in the left hand. And this isn't this is only for it's just for like one verse or it's not for very long and but you end up with this sort of backbeat with the with the with the stick you know on the snare and it's quite gentle but it's definitely a different sound than the brush um and it's not um in fact it might be actually a plastic flicks hot rod actually and then it goes then the next thing is it goes stick on the ride and then you've got this uh which i think it might be one of these plastic hot rods and then it goes to sticks when there's a fill it eventually goes to sticks both into hands both in both hands and then the song kind of cruises out then and the you know just kind of it's like full on and there's the and then you breathe a big sigh of relief in the studio and you've got there and everything's beautiful. And then you walk into the control room and I did this take, first take, and I did a great take, like it was just perfect. There's no like noticeable, audible gap in between anything. It was just, you know, smooth and I was really organised. I had the sort of hot rod here and the brush there and the lightning rod there and the sticks here and... And when we're doing it live, I've got to do the same thing. I do a slightly simpler thing live because the 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 rods don't translate so well live. The brushes do, yeah, and, and it just kind of it kind of goes brush to stick and brush to sticks, and it's just easier live to do that because um, you know you don't want things in a studio. You can do another take. You know? I mean, time is money and all that. But at the end of the day, you do have that option. But on uh, on a gig, you, you just want to be playing the music, you know but there is still a logistical thing on the gig and I've still got to be organised on the gig I'm not like I was in the studio anyway so I did this take and it was great and I was like really chuffed myself and I came into the control room and uh, Tom was like ah brilliant that was amazing can you just do another take and I was like why? what? it was perfect he went yeah yeah it was absolutely brilliant Just can you just go and do another one please Go and just go and do another one you know I was like, absolutely, you're the boss. Straight back in there, sat on the drums, and I was like, oh, I've got to do that all again. And it was one of those ones, It's one of those sort of takes that you're dreading, you, know, you want to get it out of the way, because you just think, if you know, you know, I just want to get this done, because it's like a big song, and there's a lot of work to do in it, and I don't want to be the one holding everybody up. I mean, we were tracking the bass and the drums a lot of the time. First, um, we were doing some stuff, a little bit more live, but it was generally, stuff was being... Uh, the bass and the drums were going down, they were pretty much as they were until everything was gridded, obviously, when it was mixed and everything, but the, the fundamental thing was it was going down as it was and stuff was being built on top of it, so I felt, I just felt really responsible, every, if we were sort of doing a track a day, tracking once a day, roughly, with the drums, and um, sometimes we're doing two tracks in a day, uh, and it was, uh you know, it was full on. It was a very enjoyable sort of emotional experience, and there was lots of stuff going on. Uh, particularly when we were recording this tune, there was uh, stuff going on um, out in the world and things, and and so it was really full on kind of vibe. And uh, so I went back in, did another take, and it wasn't as good. You know, the changeovers weren't quite smooth, and this, whatever, and blah blah blah. You know, it was one of them. And I finished the end of it, and I was like. And there's a, I think there's a bit on the album where, uh, I think it's from this take, where the the brushes just come in at the end again. Because I was sort of like messing about, you know, because I thought, well, we've got the first take. This is just a, a banker, if you like. Well, no, the first take, well, it's hard, isn't it? You think, oh, the first take's a banker, but then you do a really good take and you think, oh, it's not, you know, it's a banker, but it's, you know, it's like um, you always think you've got the extra Lewis Hamilton lap in you, you know. You're going to be able to like he's got he gets his banker laps in and he's kind of quicker than two tenths quicker than everybody, and then he goes out and does another three tenths, you know. Uh, and this definitely wasn't that. This was like you know, I was I was three tenths up on the on the first take, and then I was a second down on, on this second take. Anyway, walked out of the drum thing, went into. the... Went into the, you know, the control room and Tom was like, That's the take. And I was like, What? Really? He's like, Yeah, it's just it had more it's just got more character about it. It's just something more there was just something more fragile about it. It just had something that I want the song to have, you know. And I was it was like a real lesson for me of of when you're Wanting to be so, we're kind of brought up, aren't we, to be pros? You know, you have this thing of like you're either you're like a band drummer where you play in a band and that's what you do, and uh, that's it. Or what I was the way I was brought up was I was going to be a player, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to be useful to lots of different people and be able to play lots of different styles of music and be super pro and all those kind of things. And one of those things is that there's all the big kind of the stories of the big players who they go in and do the first take you know and you all we all aspire to be that thing and it's like yeah you know Jeff Beccaro's and the John Robinsons and you know blah 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 Ricky Lawson's and all these different amazing players that, you know they go in the studio they nail the first take and then they do another take for good luck and uh those Those stories are actually myths because the, those players worked they worked really really closely and really hard with producers you know and actually there's a lot more to it than that and uh and there's also this thing as well of of you know what I might deem as being super pro or perfect it may not be right for the music or for the song you know so it was like a it was a great learning experience for me and the, the sort of process of it may be really think about um about how i worked in the studio compared to live you know and about that thing of mainly of always being open to being asked to do something again or to do something differently uh, or to change something that you really feel strongly about you know uh, and sometimes it gets hard because sometimes um, if you've got a lot of people involved in a situation and a lot of people have got opinions and, you know, d- democracy is nice but at the end, you know, there's there's got to be a dictator. There's got to be somebody who makes the decision, you know. Um, but if you're working in certain situations where there's, um, you know, a lot of opinions flying around, uh, I find it, uh, much easier these days to stay out of that thing uh, with anything that I'm playing. Uh, I definitely have opinions about other people's stuff, and it's normally very positive. You know, I just if something sounds great. I always think it sounds great. You know, <clears throat> but with my own my own sort of drum parts, again, I, I'm always open to reevaluating if somebody wants to do something differently, and so that, the kind of process of that is. He's been able to, like, uh, keep a level head and also keep relaxed um, and have a real understanding of uh, of what the part is and what you're trying to do. And having that ability to listen, you know, it's really important that... It sounds dead obvious, but, um, you know, we're, we're team players, aren't we? We forget sometimes that uh, in those situations we're definitely i'm definitely in the team i'm not leading the team i'm I'm in the team i'm i'm someone who's you know is trying to get the quickest way to uh to getting something down that's going to be uh people are going to be able to use you know and play on top of and build a track on so again understanding how that process works in yourself you know um can be just kind of can be really um it's a fascinating thing and it teaches you a lot about how you kind of relate to people and and you know are uh, are you happy to to change you know the sort of the drums that you're playing even you know the hi hats the cymbals have different symbols and retune your drums or you use bigger bass, different bass drums and stuff um i'm i i used to be quite precious about my gear you know I used to think, well, I've got my gear and my gear is my sound, and this is me you know and uh, and it's definitely the 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 case on gigs but it's it's certainly not the case and when I go in the studio now, you know i'm very much you're very much hoping that you're working in a studio environment um with Someone who knows their studio and and has a really good idea of of what drums sound really good in their room, you know, and about having that kind of openness um to being able to take on board their advice, you know, because if you're if you're kind of like, no, this is my this is my drum kit and this is my sound about it, um you may be missing the whole big thing, you know, and people that you're working with, you don't really want to create that impression of being inflexible, you know, Uh, and it's not about being a pushover, it's not about not having, you know, like an identity and stuff, you know, Um, the identity comes, the identity is in your playing, it's always in your playing, nobody ever plays the same thing the same, you know, so, I, I think it's it's really it's really helpful to again you know to be able to have that kind of flexibility. Um, so I'm going to play you a bit of that clip now. Um, so it's in two sections. You'll hear it. They're very short clips, by the way. But I just wanted to. This was the original take. So I asked. <laughs> it's my own ego here. I asked the engineer um, a guy called Tom Lofman a very nice chap great musician as well um, I asked him can I have a copy of that drum take because it felt like it was never going to see the light of day you know which is fine um, you know it's um, it's just a drum take at the end of the day the right take for the song was going to make it onto the song and, and that's its purpose isn't it you know but I wanted to, I wanted to have the the take so that I uh, had a a kind of memory of it, and was it actually what I thought it was? And then it was also something I I have occasionally played to students as an example of of what I'm talking about today about this idea of of having flexible kind of attitude and processes in the studio and being able to be open to listening to people, you know, and be able to get over. Uh, get over yourself when you really feel like you haven't got anything more to give, or you know, or you've given your best and all that stuff. Your what you think is your best is definitely not what other people think your best is. You know, um, people see things differently than you do. So, um, so I'm going to play. It's, uh, there's two clips. One is the is is like a bit slightly longer bit, but it's where there's some changes. It goes from I think brushes to rod hot rod uh, to back to brushes and then it goes back to uh, rod and uh, brush again and then there's the then there's the change where it goes from rod and uh, I think it's the the plastic hot rod in the left hand. it might be a stick to ride symbol with a stick and you'll hear the two different things and they're kind of cross faded together so um, I'll just put those those clips in now so you can hear there where it's gone to the rod uh, in the right hand Um, it's still the brush in the left hand Back to two, back to brushes now. Great bass drum. There was the change to the rod again. Uh, Now there's a bit of a crossfade into the next part. It goes along that for a while. Now you'll hear another change. I think that is a stick, actually. That's stick in the left hand now. So we've gone rod in the right hand, stick. Can hear obviously the rides now with a stick. So So there you go, anyway. That's just like an example of that um of what was going on in that track, you know, and uh being faced with having to do it all again, you know. Um but yeah, I got over myself, did it again. And uh, yeah, it's a great album. If you haven't heard that album, uh, did I sleep in Mr. Border? Um, it was a great session actually, because there's two uh, two records came out of that session. Um, there's another thing called the Buzzard Tree Sessions, which is there's some there was some stuff recorded then that um, was used on on a it's like an EP. And it's got some great tracks on there that, that didn't make didn't get on the album because they would they weren't obviously weren't right for the album, for the sort of theme of the album. Um and they were and they had some they were recorded, some stuff was recorded at a later date as well, and, and other bits and bobs of different things, but um but I really recommend that uh as well. the Buzzard Tree Sessions, it's really great. And that features, you know, it's like a um that kind of that era of that band um with uh, me and Richard Hammond and Ollie Cunningham, Brian Wright, um Ollie Krauss was re- remote on that. He was he did his stuff because um, he was in uh, where he lives in America, he wasn't able to get over. But um yeah, it's uh, really, really the two really great records, you know. Um and anyway, so yeah, I thought it was just a little bit of an example there. Just thought it would be useful to uh, put a bit of context behind that. Um It feels like I can now sort of have soundtracks on in the background, you know. Uh, you've got to be careful what you play, because you've obviously got to have copyright. I did ask Tom um, permission to discuss this story and use uh, the clip... Um, but the clip never made the album, so it's it's a moot point, as they say. Um, that's the right use of that phrase. I'll be corrected if it's not. But yeah, so anyway, um, there's lots, probably lots of other things to discuss about that kind of topic, but I, I think that's probably enough for today. Um, just to say, keep well, stay home. That's um, the, the you know the more of us that stay home in the next two or three weeks, the genuine the quicker this thing will pass. Um, because it's a simple thing, isn't it? You know, this thing can only exist if people spread it between each other. And, you know, it doesn't float along in the breeze or, you know, down a river or something. It 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 just goes person to person. So, you know. If we can sort of have this, this sort of window of um, of its opportunity, you know, massively reduced, then we stand a chance of really helping our healthcare workers, nurses and doctors, and people. You know, making sure that that they're not overwhelmed with needless amounts of um, of cases of people that have got ill because they haven't. You know, adhere to these um, to these simple rules. It's a massive inconvenience. Um, I mean, none of us know we're ill either. That's the big thing as well. But it, it's just, you know, I came home a week last Tuesday. I've been out of the house twice uh, in nearly two weeks, and both those times were to buy food. I haven't been anywhere else, you know. And uh, it's one of those things where you just got to do your bit, you know. And it's tough. um, But it's, I'm just sort of hoping, you know, every time I go out of the house, you don't know whether you're going to catch something. So you're counting days again. You know, last time I went out the house was Thursday. It's now Sunday. I'm still well. So fingers crossed, you know, but you just don't know, do you? Um, But the easiest way to kind of stop this thing from spreading around is just to stay home, stay close to the people you're living with. And they'll do the same. And then at least you know in your home that you're clean. Everything's clean and you can just relax and, you know, live uh, live normally. And, um, you know, just keep sending out the good vibes out there for people that are on the front line of this, you know. And uh, the best way all of us can help is literally to stay at home, you know. So thanks for listening. Keep well. And... Uh, I'll be back again next week, so bye for now.